I want to sleep at night. I don't think the sports betting is an, is an ill. I think it gives people a lot of uh, pleasure and I think it can be done right. And we are doing it right, but we won't ever have online slots because online slots are just known to be extremely addictive. They prey on the people with gambling issues. Hey, this is Jesse here, and you're about to hear episode 90 of the Betting Startups podcast with Malcolm and Steve from We The Bookie, which is Ireland's only truly socially responsible bookmaker. The guys explain their unique model that sees them giving a percentage of player losses back to customers, how they're applying the profit for purpose philosophy to their business, and why they think their model is set to disrupt the global betting industry. I really enjoyed hearing the We The Bookie story, and I hope you do too. This episode is brought to you by InPlay Innovation, the leaders in AI-powered sports gaming technology. Discover how they're using advanced AI to build the ultimate second screen experience, powered by the only full stack solution for micro same game parlays, uninterrupted in-play markets, and fully automated risk management. To learn more about the future of sports gaming, visit www.inplayinnovation.com. All right, we are back on the Betting Startups podcast. And for this one, I'm joined by Malcolm and Steve from We The Bookie, which is a new operator with a unique model that is actually unique. I know that term gets thrown around a lot, but I actually do mean it in this case. We'll unpack it all in a couple of minutes here. But first, guys, welcome to the pod. How is everything going on your side as we kick off our discussion here today? Yeah, fantastic. We actually hope to relaunch this month. So it's a pretty busy and exciting time for us. Awesome. How are things going on your end today, Steve? Yeah, absolutely. Great, uh, great to be here. Thanks again, Jesse. Things have been great. As per Malcolm, things have been uh, really busy as we're kind of amping up for the relaunch. So having some great conversations with uh, some potential partners uh, leading up to the launch. So, you know, just getting excited. Awesome. Well, excited to unpack everything uh, you guys have done up until this point, And as importantly, all the things you have coming up here. So We'll get into that in a moment, but just to start off here, as we do at the start of every episode, it'd be great to just to hear a little bit about yourselves, maybe some of the major chapters of your journeys up until you founded We The Bookie. Malcolm, maybe we can start with you on this one. Uh, sure. So I'm from Toronto, Canada originally, and I started my career uh, in the actuarial profession. So I worked uh, for 15 years with uh, Mercer and I worked with them uh, in Toronto, Dublin, Ireland, and in India. And then after that career, I started training in, in data science and data analytics. And then the concept for We The Bookie uh, hit like lightning. And then it's been that ever since. How about yourself, Steve? So for myself, very quick, long story, but I used to be a university lecturer and always kind of worked at the forefront of profit with purpose. Uh, had my own strategic consultancy that worked with profit and purpose and social impact and really integrating that more into more stigmatized industries and companies, gambling industry being one of those industries at the time. And so when I met Malcolm, he was one of the only individuals that I had met to date in the gambling industry that had a much different vision. It was much more socially responsible and very much in line with what I envisioned for both a business and a brand in the gambling industry. And so we instantly connected on both a personal and professional level. And it's been amazing since. Awesome. And we'll talk more about that uh, in a few moments here, guys. But I'd love to drill into the origins of We The Bookie. He's just sort of alluded to it, Steve. I guess when you guys crossed paths, it was sort of that moment of clarity where you probably recognize that, yes, this is something we need to do together. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, just like those initial conversations and, and kind of where you guys were both at and, and sort of why you decided that launching a, a bookmaking business was what the, the thing was that you were going to collaborate on? Well, 
I guess the, the origin story of We the Bookie, it probably goes back about 15, 20 years. When I was living in Toronto, back then, it was the local bookie down the street or on the phone. And myself and my friend were, like most people, losing money every year. So I came up with this uh, idea that we would just bet with each other. I didn't want to be his bookie. He didn't want to be mine. But if we were each other's, we wouldn't feel weird about it. So we did that for a few years. And once I explain the We the Bookie model, you'll understand better what that means. But yeah, really, once we came up with the concept of We the Bookie, I, I approached Steve back in 2018 on it. And at that point, it was, it was too early days to really get Steve involved. But over a year ago, Steve contacted me and said, you know, I can't get, well, Steve, you can, you can say your side yourself. Yeah. You know, once the industry in Ontario uh, started to come to be, you know, over the last few years, you know, at that point time, based off of just my experience and relationships within the industry, I had started to have some initial conversations. And from my, you know, initial observations, what I saw, to be honest with you, was an opportunity. Uh, what I saw, you know, in my approximation were a lot of companies playing in a sea of sameness and, you know, as a brand, ultimately matching each other shot for shot. But I saw that as a very expensive kind of game and the strategic proposition. And I saw a much different opening that was a lot more grassroots, a lot more, in a way, honest in regards to the conversation one could have with a customer. And also just in regards to establishing that trust with the customer in regards to what our ultimate motive was. And I felt that that's where Malcolm had created a business model that truly did play into the ultimate profit with purpose model of there simply is enough to go around for the business, for the player in need, and beyond that, for the community itself, which we can get into a little bit later. So that kind of melding is why ultimately after having some conversations with individuals in the gambling industry within Canada, kind of came back to Malcolm knowing that he was situated in Ireland and say, you know, going back to our conversation from a couple of years back, I think it is time for us to collaborate because I really think that there is an opportunity here to be a David in a world of Goliaths. Love it. Well, that segues nicely, guys, into We the Bookie itself. Let's do a little bit of a deep dive here to give folks listening a bit of a better sense as to what it is that you're doing exactly. So maybe just to start with, you could provide a high concept overview. Talk a bit about what is We the Bookie, what it does, and, and what's the overall value prop of it. We the Bookie operates the same as a conventional uh, online bookmaker. You know, think Bet365 in Ireland would be Patty Power. And we operate the same as them, same look and feel, similar odds, odds in line with them. But then at the end of each month, we take our accumulated gross gaming revenue. So the top level revenue a bookie makes on the bets. And then we give half of that back to our losing customers in direct proportion to their loss that month. So what does that mean? It means that every month, if you lose a hundred bucks, you're going to get back somewhere between zero and 50%. Zero would be if we, the bookie had a losing month, very rare, of course, for a bookmaker. And 50% would also be very rare because that would mean that every single customer had a losing month that month. So in reality, it falls somewhere between those two. And in our first six months of live beta launch, where we were taking in five to 10 grand in, in bets per month, the amount that each customer was getting back was ranging from between 21 to 48%. June was actually our best month, 48%. That meant that literally if you lost a grand, you got 480 back that goes straight into your account. You can withdraw it. You've already earned it. There's no playthrough requirements. In reality, of course, our customers don't withdraw it. They're going to play play with it. And that's the main 
value add of the model. And there's a secondary feature uh, we call it the bookies view feature. So if you're a customer of We the Bookie, you will want to win your bets like normal. But opposed to the other bookies, where it's kind of a us versus them mentality, customer versus bookie, our customers actually want We the Bookie to beat the other customers because that increases the size of this. We call it a we share distribution. So it increases the size of the we share pool. So what we do is for big events like uh, in Ireland, it would be the Premiership Soccer, uh, Premiership Football on on the on a Saturday in, in Canada or the states. It might be uh, NFL on Sundays. We would publish our position on those matches so that even if you don't like betting on the NFL or you're not betting on that game, you can still cheer for the outcome that makes things better for we the bookie. Super interesting model, Malcolm, and, and obviously extremely unique within the industry. I mean, as far as I'm aware, there's nobody else doing anything even remotely close to this. And really clear to me how this does dovetail with your earlier comments around profit with purpose and sort of social responsibility around gaming. But I guess what I'm curious about is, you know, sports betting margins are already quite slim. I'm curious, like, how does the model of We the Bookie impact your unit economics and I guess ultimately the, you know, the feasibility and health of the business? Sure. So I was, uh, I was an early adopter of, of Betfair. I was actually doing a third year exchange in uh, Leeds University, which is, I believe, close to where Betfair started back in 98, 99. So I like this concept of, of low VIG, but obviously that's the exchange model. It's totally different. But then over the years, I'd, I'd heard about Pinnacle's model. So Pinnacle is also a kind of a low VIG, more competitive odd model. So I thought, okay, if a company like Pinnacle can be profitable like that, well, that must mean there's a lot of fat in the system. So what else might we do and how can we re reimagine that fat in the system? So we're basically getting to the same average VIG of say a Betfair or a Pinnacle, but we do it in a different way. And I think it's in a more entertaining way for the customer. It's also a way that rewards the casual punter more than the sharp punter. Because if you're winning every month, you're not actually getting any benefit from our model. Interesting. And I guess, how is the model being received by your customers? I mean, obviously the, the value proposition is compelling and I, I would assume that, you know, customers are embracing it, but I guess just what's the feedback you're hearing and is it resonating ultimately with, with your customer base? Yeah. So our customer base, we're loving the model when we were live from January to June this year. You know, if you're used to what you're used to, then, you know, we had one customer who loved to bet on really high volatility stuff like two draws in, in football games, both happening. And so he would have losing months and then big winning months. So he was up and down, but one month he was down a grand and he got, I think, 350 back that month. And he just said, this is unbelievable. So we did have some issues with our platform. So we were getting feedback that the platform wasn't the best, but in terms of the model, our customers were, you know, hundred percent retention. And that, that's one of the metrics that your earlier question about the feasibility of the low margin approach. On the various metrics, we're going to be better and worse than the status quo. Retention is definitely going to be our best metric. Once you experience our model, you're just simply not going to go back to the, the other way. But the other key metric that we're going to prove out is that our customer acquisition costs are going to be lower than, than the norm. Because if you're a regular bookmaker, and, you, and in Canada, with all the legalization going on right now, there's so many advertisements going on in this space. And if you'll notice, none of them are actually presenting any value out to the customers. They're just saying, hey, we've got that builder. Hey, we've got parlays. Hey, yeah, so everyone has. So we can actually present something to the customers, to the potential customers, that's truly better for them. So um, for that reason, we expect cost, customer acquisition costs to be lower. 
Interesting. And look, you talked about the retention side. I, I completely agree. I would assume that once you've got a customer into your ecosystem, they're going to stick around by virtue of the value proposition. But I guess just coming back to the acquisition side first and even getting them into your ecosystem in the first place, you know, it's notoriously difficult and expensive. And particularly given that you're effectively operating on a low margin model. And, and look, without talking about myself here, I mean, I was with Pinnacle Sports for six years, so I have a little bit of familiarity with that model and sort of the challenges therein with respect to basically having discretionary marketing budgets to acquire customers at scale, right? And I guess it, it forces you to get a bit creative with acquisition, but I guess, Malcolm, like, how are you and the team thinking about acquiring customers and ultimately getting the word out about this very compelling value prop that you have for them? At the moment, you know, we'll talk about funding perhaps later. The moment it's theoretical when it comes to, to marketing spends, but it really depends on how much money we have. So at the start, when it's very limited, then it'll be live events in pubs where, you know, Champion League is, is on and, you know, we do an event and science people up and then, you know, we can have some low cost, I don't like the word influencers, but we've already been in communication with some smaller local podcasters who are happy to support the model and essentially grow, grow kind of a small base. And I think that once we grow in the small base, things will actually start getting easier because one of the early observations I had is that at this point, based on our size and based on our model, we suffer from the too good to be true phenomenon. And once you start growing and people start actually experiencing it, that starts to, to dissipate. If you can imagine a pub in Ireland where everyone's betting on horse racing, if you sign one person up in that pub and then over the last few months, you know, especially if he has a losing month and the we share comes in, you know, they're in the pub all day, they're chatting about this stuff. All of a sudden, you've got the whole pub. So now th those are scalable. But then once we get investment and start, you know, doing paid marketing, well, that's just going to be not only the some of the similar marketing to our competitors, but actually we're going to be able to do different marketing and more conventional marketing that they that's not open to them because they don't have that value add. You know, your typical hey, we've got this that's good, sign up. They can't do that. So Steve, you may want to jump in on this too. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, you, you raised an excellent point in regards to the idea that at the end of the day, our customers themselves will also be the ones who will be hailing our brand. The reason why is because unlike our competitors, we actually offer something different to the customer who loses. Whereas others, you know, might be able to, you know, lament their situation here there's actually an advantage to be had. And so we have a little bit of a built-in kind of customer loyalty in regards to our word of mouth, which is also in the early days how we plan on acquiring customers. Beyond that, we're taking a very grassroots approach. Part of that, and as we look to models around the world, but also as we look to regulations, not just the ones that are here, but the ones that are going to come down the pipe, we're very conscious of the amount of money that competitors are spending on huge sponsorships and endorsements and spokespeople and, quite frankly, ethically questionable uh, when it comes to, you know, the realm of sport and some of the kind of leagues and or individuals who are being now kind of wrapped up into it and customer facing. So not only do we see that as ethically questionable, we actually see, again, an opportunity for much more community-minded organizations and individuals to have a platform and to have a partnership, and in a way to help tout this much more responsible model, this much more generous model, 
And this kind of movement within the sports betting industry to say, you know what? There is enough to go around. We aren't going to be spending exorbitantly on marketing. We'd actually like for it to go back to our players and the communities in which our players live and those who are advocating on behalf of our players and their communities. So that's in a way part two of the marketing strategy. Again, very grassroots, very affordable. Cool. It's, it's super unique, guys, but I think also extremely compelling and, and really, I think, tells a story around purpose-driven brand, really, right? And I guess I'm curious as well, just from a go-to-market perspective, you know, you have, uh, I understand, an Ireland remote bookmakers license. Can you explain what markets that license gives you access to? Um, and ultimately, why did you decide to secure that license as opposed to other remote gaming jurisdictions? Well, when I thought of the company, it was back in 2018. And at that time, betting wasn't even legal in, in Canada. Now, I still could have set the company up in Canada, but I had lived in Ireland, in Ireland for five years in my 20s, and I was kind of looking for an excuse to come back to Ireland. I, I liked it here. They also had the infrastructure for legal betting. So that was really the reason I came to Ireland. And I felt that in, in setting up a startup, it would be best to start at the proof of concept launch in a, a, the jurisdiction in which you're residing. It just makes things easier. You can do live events, et cetera. Hence, got the Irish uh, remote bookmaker license. It really only serves Ireland. And then we're really going to be uh, doing the proof of concept in Ireland. And then once we prove the concept, we want to scale globally rapidly so that we uh, will have first mover advantage around the world. And then I want to ask as well, Malcolm, you made a reference a few minutes ago just to the platform that you're using. And it's, this isn't a topic we frankly spent a ton of time on with previous guests of the podcast. I just want to zoom in here for a moment. And Talk a little bit about, I guess, the, the platform vendor ecosystem. And, you know, you mentioned you went to market with one platform. Maybe it didn't meet expectations on some level. And I understand you're going through a platform migration. Can you just talk a little bit about, I guess, what that journey has been like for We the Bookie as an upstart operator and just sort of what the process is like to evaluate all the many offerings that are out there and how you ultimately decide which platform is right for you and your business? Two words, <laughs> bloody difficult. It's really tough, especially when you are a first-time founder first time working in this industry, modestly funded, and coming up with a novel model that ha uh, hasn't been tried and tested. So when you're approaching different platform providers, a lot of them are just priced out, uh, priced beyond our model or beyond our current state. So it was tough, tough journey. That was definitely the single most difficult part of this journey. You know, we were in communication in, back in 2019 with a, a London-based platform provider, we actually had a heads of term sign with them. They pulled out last minute because they were actually completely changing their company and separating from their parent. Then, yeah, we had uh, an initial launch on another platform and that didn't really serve our customers or potential customers very well. Now we're excited to launch on every matrix um, by the end of the month. So it's been a journey, but yeah, it's difficult because again, it, it's more subtle than just platform provider. You have to find the platform provider that has a data deal, you know, an odds feed that is affordable because Odds feeds have different prices. So when you're, when you're giving up half your gross, you just have to be very careful with whom you do business. Fair enough. And one thing that I find even more novel about We The Bookie than it already is based on the model you've explained is the fact that as a bookmaker, you don't have any adjacent casino product or, or gaming product or sort of RNG product. And that I understand was a very conscious decision by you guys as well, which sort of ties back to the profit for purpose and sort of socially responsible aspect to it. Can you just talk a little bit about, I guess, that decision and 
look, I mean, we talk a lot on this podcast about how the sentiment within the industry, you know, typically is that, you know, sportsbook is what acquires the customers, but the casino is how you actually make money as a business from the customers. And that could have been an easy decision, I guess, on that basis. But obviously, it was a very principled decision. I'm just curious if you guys can sort of talk through internal monologue you would have had around it and, and ultimately what fed into that decision uh, at the end of the day. Yeah. So I want to sleep at night. I don't think the sports betting is an, is an ill. I think it gives people a lot of uh, pleasure. And I think it can be done right. And we are doing it right. Whereas online casino, it's not to say we will never have an online casino, but we won't ever have online slots because online slots are just known to be extremely addictive. They prey on the people with gambling issues. But, you know, would we in the future perhaps have live blackjack? That'll be a, a future business decision. We'll have to do it. But we'll have to be comfortable that it's not overly harmful to our customers. So it's, it's really, you know, just we want to earn a living, but we want to sleep at night. And, and, and on that note, by the way, I get approached by an awful lot of uh, CRM companies. And there's a place for We the Bookie for that where, you know, you can use these algorithms to help your customers in different ways. But we're not going to be using these algorithms that encourage our customers to bet more than they normally would. And there's a lot of sneaky algorithms out there. But that's another thing we're not doing. Yes, I could just jump in for one second. I think that Malcolm's excellent point, there was a very conscious decision that based off of the fact that we really did want this to be and do want this to be and expect this to be, you know, amongst the most socially responsible bookmaking business on the planet. And we mean that, you know, as a kind of overall rally cry, because we also want people to understand the advantage of being with a bookmaker that does things much differently. If we do ever integrate in even, you know, a casino element, even that itself would be done, as you know, Malcolm alluded to, in the most responsible way. And in regards to the profit sharing, yet again, it would be in line with We the Bookie, meaning a lot of it would be, you know, charity slash community oriented. So that profits were again going back to causes and individuals that our customer base and beyond would be proud of. Yeah, well, as I say, guys, it's, uh, I mean, a very noble position to take and, and at the expense of potential revenue. So I, I give all my respect and, and kudos to you guys for taking that approach, which, which frankly is a bit of a contrarian one, given uh, others operating in the landscape that obviously sort of take the other path. So yeah, credit words to you for that, guys. Let's talk a little bit about just the, the fundraising side of all of this. You've made reference to it now, Malcolm, a couple of times. So to start with, it'd be great if you could give us a little bit of a sense of the background or on any funding you've done to date and basically how you've been able to, I guess, get to, get to this point and, and capitalize the business up until today. In summer of 2021, we raised 150,000 euro through about 15 friends and family. I believe that every single one of my investors, I, this is their first ever startup investment, which is fun and exciting. It also means that it's not a group that we can go back to for uh, much more. This actually, it actually feels very similar to how Betfair was back in the, the in about 2000. I think they were in a similar situation where they were, had a hard time getting more money from their seed group of friends and family, but they weren't quite ready for the institutional investment to come in. Uh, so if uh, Richard Koch is, is listening, we're similar to, to how you made your, your bazillions uh, 20 years ago. So come on in. And now that we've decided to transition to a new platform, that obviously incurs more cost because there's more burn time with salaries and things. And there's the extra cost of uh, setup fees on the new platform. So we're currently in the midst of a bridge round, which we're capping at 200,000. Well, it's, uh, it's actually on a variable valuation that changes um, day by day. At the moment, it's 4 million. We have 25,000 in on that. And 
Uh, that's just from our C group. And we're just beginning to start to look beyond our group, maybe some angel investors and, and things like that. We're really just trying to get enough capital to see us through about six months to a year with tiny bit of paid marketing uh, so that we can prove out the concept and get the big money in. And I was just going to ask you, Malcolm, as far as, I guess, the types of investors you might be looking for for this bridge round, I mean, you mentioned you sort of exhausted the friends and family category. So like, what's the profile of the type of investor you'd be looking for to, to come into the business? And obviously, the ideal scenario, I assume, would be one that adds some additional value beyond the, the value of the check that they're writing. But yeah, what's, what's the sort of profile of the type of investor you're looking for in the event they might be listening to this episode? Yeah, ideally, it's someone who, I mean, ideally, it's someone who has connections in the industry or connections to more fundraising. Of course, that's the ideal. But in reality, we're still at this round, we're still open to 5,000 uh, level, you know, smaller investments. And we're set up on Seed Legals, which is a, a large UK base that they, they handle a lot of startups over here. And they, they have a pretty simple system where you additional people come on and it's, and you don't have to have the whole rigor roll of a lot of paperwork. And so, yep, really it's open to anyone. Just shifting from there and talking about just, just pitching in general, right? I mean, you guys are at this point, I think veterans of the industry conference circuit and particularly the aspect of it where startups are pitching at these conferences. And Malcolm, I think you and I first met in person in London at ICE, I want to say in 2021, it was the one first yeah. one post COVID, I think it was in April that year where they adjusted the timeline a little bit, but anyways, you were there at the pitch competition. I was hosting it. So we met up there for the first time. Uh, I met both of you guys earlier this year, again, in Toronto at the Canadian gaming summit. You pitched there on a last minute basis, actually, which was really well done, uh, given that you had no idea you were going to be pitching that day. I think you guys were in Barcelona in September at SBC pitching there. And by the time this episode drops, it's going to be right around the day you are due to be pitching once again at Sigma Malta. So I guess I'm just curious, like you're going around to all these conferences and, and getting there on stage and, and sort of telling the we the bookie story. How has that helped you guys and, and what benefit has that brought you in the business up until this point? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's comforting to be selected to pitch at these events. Uh, you get through that vetting process. And really, I think every single conference has been better and better in terms of connections and feedback. You know, the first one with you and ICE, I think I was pitching in the morning. There weren't many people watching. Um, but from that, I think I made a pretty good impression on the ICE people themselves. And they invited me back as the only pitcher to kick off proceedings the following year of being interviewed by Benji Cherniak. And that was a great way to meet Benji. We've kept in contact. And from that, you know, Canadian gaming conference was interesting. Like, yeah, the last minute pitch. And then in Barcelona, more recently, I, I, I got some investors following up with me after saying, really like the pitch. And so that actually led to some intro calls where I'm still in communication with some of those people. And yeah, looking for more of the same in Malta. Awesome. What are your expectations for, for the Malta pitch competition? Well, my expectations is that the weather's going to be a lot better than Southwest <laughs> Ireland. So if, if, if for no other reason, uh, it'll be nice to get a little bit of sunshine. We're getting down to the closing moments here of this episode. So I guess just looking ahead, I mean, what are the major milestones you're focused on for next year? I guess what, has, what does a successful 2024 look like for We The Bookie? Yeah. So by the start of 2024, we'll of course be live in the first three months of the year. We want to prove out some, some metrics, especially customer acquisition. We want to get more significant funding in from institutional investors. Then we can scale. UK is a natural next step. Uh, Ontario is interesting. And South America, anywhere that's, that's, that's legal and has a, a, a taxation system that works for us, 
will go. And so we want to scale quickly. So by the end of 2024, we definitely like to be in a, in a second geography and be on the path to, frankly, being the largest sports book in the world. Sorry, Bet365. Love the ambition, guys. That takes us to my standard closing question. So uh, I'll be looking for answers from each of you. Steve, we'll start with you on this one. I'll just quickly read it out to you. If you weren't working on We The Bookie, if you weren't doing anything in this industry, if you weren't doing anything in previous career chapters in a parallel universe, what would you be doing instead? I think that if I could do anything else beyond being a chauffeur for my four sons and their various sporting activities, I would be a writer. Uh, the reason I would uh, love to do that is I would love to be in isolation and I'd love to be able to reflect on both my time in purpose and social impact, as well as on the other side, working uh, with more stigmatized and vice industries. So a writer would be my answer. Awesome. How about yourself, Malcolm? I'd like to be a data consultant to professional golfers. I'd like to uh, improve their results um, by basically making them a little bit uh, change their risk reward profile and change their shot making uh, style. I think that'd be a lot of fun and I think I'd be good at it. So if there's actually, if there are any professional golfers out there or want to be professional golfers out there, happy to give you a little bit of free consultation on that for fun. A <laughs> little, little bit of money ball for golf, eh? Yep, exactly. And for folks listening that want to get in touch with you to possibly learn more about We The Bookie or maybe the investment opportunity and or people that want to check out the product itself, where can you point them towards to do all that? Sure. Thanks, Jesse. Um, so at the moment, as of you know, when this airs, the site will probably still be a, a shell. And uh, once we relaunch by the end of the month, it'll, you know, it'll look like a normal site. So that's www.wethebookie.com. Any Irish listeners who, who want to join as customers and take advantage of this, this great model, then of, of course, please do so. You know, for the people who want to get involved in, in this round, whether that be angel investors or even small-time investors, they can either email me directly at malcolm at bethebookie.com. Uh, people always butcher the spelling of my name. So um, if they'd rather, they could also just email to invest at wethebookie.com. Both emails would come to me anyway. And also... The institutional investors who we've been speaking to are excited about the model and the the global scale potential of the model. They understandably want to see some uh, some further metrics once we relaunch, like customer acquisition. But I think it's still interesting to have those conversations with the institutional investors, uh, because quite frankly, once we do prove those metrics, I actually think there might be a little bit of a feeding frenzy at that point. So for those institutional investors out there who want to at least get to know me and the company better uh, in the early days. Uh, I'd be happy to uh, have some intro calls with them too. Well, look, guys, really appreciate you joining the pod today. It's been great to chat and learn more about what you're up to and, and bring a bit more visibility to this really unique model you're bringing to market. So thanks for joining the pod and really wishing both you guys all the best for the year ahead and look forward to continuing to follow the story. Jesse, thanks a lot for having us on. It's, it's been great. And it was, it's been good to meet you uh, here and there at various conferences. Hope to see you again soon. Absolutely. I echo that sentiment. Thank you so much, Jesse.